where our passage this morning is about the divine visitation that God gave to humanity 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. Zechariah, the priest who is stating the Benedictus, that is the text that we have this morning, uses that word visited. And that word is important because that word is packed with all kinds of biblical theological meaning. That word actually should cause us to remember another visitation that God had upon his people in the Old Testament. It is the visitation of the Exodus. And we see in Genesis chapter 50, which is our Old Testament lesson, that Joseph speaks of this visitation. Look at what he says in verses 24 to 25. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. This prophecy was of the Exodus. 400 years after this prophecy was given, God did in fact visit his people. And in that visitation, he freed them from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. And that's the idea that we are to think about when Zechariah speaks of this visitation. Because what our text is telling us this morning is that God has again visited his people in the person of Jesus Christ, and that ought to affect in our minds this kind of Exodus background as the template for the work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that this morning in three points. The first point is the visitation, and this is found in verses 67 to 69. The second point is the second exodus. This is found in verses 70 to 75. And then the third point is the forerunner. This is found in verses 76 to 79. So those are our three points. And before we get to our text, it's important for us to see a bit of the context of this text. Why is it that this hymn of praise is coming from the lips of an Old Testament priest? Well, this, this hymn is called the Benedictus, and it's, it gets its name from the Latin word blessed. And the man who composed this hymn, or who is speaking this hymn, was an Old Testament priest by the name of Zechariah. And what had happened was the angel Gabriel had visited Zechariah and told him that he was going to have a son and that he was to name his son John. But Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel. He and his wife were old. They had tried to have children for numerous years and were unsuccessful. And now he is being told by an angel that he is going to have a son. But he disbelieved. And as a consequence of disbelief, the angel Gabriel struck him with being mute so that he could not speak. Well, then the scene shifts to the birth of John. This is John the Baptist. And on the day that he was to be circumcised, everyone in the village came out to witness this. And they asked him, they asked Zechariah and his wife, what is the name of the child? And Elizabeth said, the name of the child is to be John. 
And they were all baffled. They thought this was the weirdest thing because the tradition was that you would name the son with a family name. And John was not a family name. And so they didn't understand what Elizabeth was saying and why she was saying it. And so they went to Zechariah and said, what is the name going to be? And Zechariah still could not talk. So they brought to him a writing tablet. And on the tablet, he said, his name is to be John. And at that very moment, Zechariah was able to speak again. You see, now he believed what Gabriel had told him. And what we have here in the Benedictus, this hymn of praise, are the very first words that come out of the mouth of Zechariah. And so that brings us to our first point. This is the visitation. One of the first things that Zechariah talks about is this visitation that has happened. Look at verses 67 to 69. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, as I mentioned, this word visited is very important. This word visited should cause us to think back to the Exodus. Because in the Exodus, God visited his people and he redeemed his people. And what we see in our text here is that in Christ, God has also visited his people and redeemed his people. Notice what it says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What is he talking about here? He's talking about John the Baptist being born as the forerunner of the coming of the Messiah. And he's pointing forward to the Messiah who is going to be born shortly and saying, in Christ, God has once again visited and redeemed his people. In verse 69, we see more clearly that it is in fact in Christ that this is to happen. Notice what he says. And has raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Well, one of the first things that you see when you open the Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, is that Jesus Christ is in the lineage of David. Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is a direct descendant of David. And so this is obviously speaking about Christ, that God has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David, and that person is Jesus Christ. The advent of Christ here then is very clearly being spoken of in terms of the exodus, in terms of this redemption that God had accomplished so many years ago with his people in freeing them from Pharaoh. And the idea is supposed to be that we should be thinking of the advent of Christ along the lines of the exodus, as in fact a second exodus. And that will become more explicit in point two. But one of the first things I think we should see here in terms of application is that understanding our salvation leads to praise. Zechariah understood what was going on in the birth of John, what was going on in the birth of Jesus. Zechariah, his wife, was related to Mary, who had just been given a prophecy about her bearing the Messiah. He was a priest. He knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and what he would do. And now understanding all of that, finally believing it, because he wrote down 
His name is to be John, which is showing that he finally believes all of this stuff. His first response is to sing a hymn of praise. In other words, salvation should lead to praise. Salvation should lead to gratitude. As we understand what it is that Jesus has done for us, it ought to affect us. Not just in terms of what we know about the doctrine of salvation. That is very important but in terms of the way in which that doctrine, that gospel, affects our lives. Are we happy that Christ came? As we celebrate Christmas today, or actually tomorrow, are we actually happy that Jesus was born? Are we joyous about it? Or are we joyous about the presents that we get? Or the time we spend with family, which is fine. All that's great stuff. But let's not forget what the purpose is. We ought to have great joy in the fact that God has saved us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing I think we should see here is the certainty of our salvation. It's really interesting when you look at this text that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that Zechariah speaks of this in the past tense. Notice he says, God has visited and redeemed his people. Now, this is before Christ is even born. Christ has not yet been born. Christ has not yet gone to the cross. Christ has not yet been risen from the dead. But Zechariah is speaking about Christ redeeming us in the past tense. And there's a reason for that. This is what scholars call the prophetic past. And what that means is that oftentimes the Bible speaks about events that would happen in the future in the past tense for the purpose of emphasizing their certainty for the purpose of emphasizing that this will actually happen and you can bet on it. And that's the way in which Zechariah is speaking about Christ visiting and redeeming us. It is an emphasis upon the certainty and completion of our salvation. So as we believe in Christ now and we are justified, we are not yet in heaven. Our salvation is not complete in that sense. We will one day go to heaven and we are to look at a passage like this and take great confidence in knowing that we will certainly be in heaven. He's speaking of it in the past tense. It's guaranteed our salvation is 100% secure. That brings us to our second point, the second exodus. In this point, we're going to see more clearly how the coming of Christ is along the lines of this kind of second exodus. Look at verses 70 to 75. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, I'm sorry, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Well, what we're going to see in this passage is that Zechariah is speaking of this second exodus in terms of the cross of Jesus Christ. That might not be apparent right away, but hopefully by the time we finish this point, you will see that. Notice first off in verses 70 to 71 that this redemption, this visitation, this second exodus was prophesied long ago as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. In other words, this is not a secret. 
anybody familiar with the Old Testament, and the Jews at this time were, ought to have known that all of this Exodus imagery is applied to Christ. You can go through the Psalms, you can go through the prophets, and you see it applied to Christ and the coming day of redemption over and over and over again. It is a template that God has laid upon the Old Testament in order to speak to us about what it was that Jesus Christ was doing. Zechariah certainly was familiar with all of those passages. But how was he going to do this? How was he going to commence this exodus? We see this in verses 72 to 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Well, this is very interesting, especially in light of the little mini-series that we have been going on in Galatians where we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Basically, what Zechariah is saying here is that we ought to view the work of Jesus Christ and the coming of the new covenant as in basic continuity with the Abrahamic covenant. Notice what he says. His holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He's making an explicit connection here between the work of Christ, the coming of the new covenant, and the oath that he swore, that God swore to Abraham. Notice what that means. Abraham was given all of these promises, and he believed them. And because Abraham believed these promises, Genesis 15, 9 says that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Do you see that? In other words, those promises were given to Abraham. Abraham believed it by faith alone, and God justified him. He declared him to be righteous. And so also, when we believe that the promises made to Abraham were fulfilled in Christ, God also justifies us by faith alone. We're declared righteous in God's court, not by anything that we have done, but by believing that Christ has in fact fulfilled the promises made to Abraham. Now furthermore, in the oath ceremony of the Abrahamic covenant, we see that it speaks of the cross of Christ. Now I won't go through the whole passage, I'll just highlight some points. But in Genesis 15, we have a very interesting passage where it is a ceremony, an oath swearing ceremony that God has with Abraham. It is the means by which God himself takes the oath to fulfill all the promises given to Abraham. And what happened was Abraham was to take various kinds of animals and cut them in half. And he was to lay them side by side all down in a path, kind of like this aisle. So that one half would be on this side and the other half would be on this side. And then God was to walk through that path in the form of a smoking pot of fire. Now, it seems kind of weird, but this was actually the way in which they swore oaths way back in the ancient Near East. And so what we see here is God making the promises to Abraham and then swearing the oath that he is going to fulfill them, that it is not dependent upon Abraham to fulfill them, but it is in fact dependent upon God to fulfill them. Now, that should be very comforting to you because God doesn't fail. Abraham will fail. You will fail. We will all fail. 
but God will not. And that means, again, that our salvation is secure. But as we look at these severed animals, an interesting thing to note is that these are all animals that will later on be used in the sacrificial system of the temple and the tabernacle. Look at Genesis 15.9, if you have your Bibles with you. We have a list here of those animals that were cut in half. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. These were the animals that were cut in half. And these are the animals that are also used in the future sacrificial system. And what that means is that the cutting of these animals in half is in fact pointing us to the cross of Christ. Because in that sacrificial system, what would happen is the offerer would lay their hands upon the animal and then the animal would be sacrificed. In other words, the sins of the offerer would be transferred to the animal and the animal would bear the penalty for those sins. And that whole purpose of the sacrificial system was to point us forward to what Jesus Christ would do, where in fact Jesus Christ would bear all of our sins on the cross and he would be punished for all of our sins in our place. And so when we look at these animals, we see that they in fact point us to the cross of Christ. Furthermore, they point us to the cross of Christ in the sense that those animals bear the curse. You see, that is what Christ has done. He bore the curse for us. Now, we've seen then God speak of this visitation and redemption as a type of exodus. That's what it's supposed to call to mind. But we've also seen that this exodus commences or takes place because of the cross of Christ. Now, that was a little bit um, not as clear as it's going to be. If we turn to our passage or to a passage in Luke, we will see that Luke makes this connection explicitly. Look, look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will begin at verse 28 to 31. <clears throat> now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's an interesting passage. This is known as the transfiguration of Christ, where he reveals his divine glory to the disciples. And in the midst of this revelation, he's also having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And they're talking about something very specific. They're talking about his departure, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, at this time, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And he's making his way to Jerusalem for the purpose of being crucified, for the purpose of going to the cross. And Luke is speaking of that crucifixion as his departure, which he is about to accomplish. Now, the relevant point here is that that word in Greek for departure is exodus. And the reason why that's relevant is because Luke is explicitly tying the crucifixion of Christ to the exodus. 
And so just as we've seen here that Christ in his visitation is commencing this kind of second exodus to free us from our sin, so Luke makes that point explicitly, saying that the cross of Christ redeems us. The cross of Christ frees us. And the cross of Christ is that second exodus. So we have then the divine Son of God, the Messiah, visiting his people, leading them on a second exodus. And he redeems his people and commences the second exodus by dying on the cross, by bearing our sins. But what was the purpose for this? It's more than just so that we will not experience divine wrath. Zechariah goes on and he describes the purpose of why he did this. Verses 74 to 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, the purpose of Christ's second exodus, redemption, visitation, was for us to serve him. In other words, he didn't die for our sins so that we can go off and live however we want to, that we can go off and behave immorally, that we can go off and continue to violate his law. Rather, he saved us so that we would serve him because we belong to him. And serving him is what it means really to be a human being. Have you ever thought about that? Why did God create us? Why did God create humanity? He created humanity to worship and to serve him. And when we don't worship and serve him, we are not functioning properly. We are, in fact, malfunctioning. And it's no surprise that our lives would then spin out of control, some people to a greater or lesser degree. It's no surprise that we would lack contentment. It's no surprise that you know, we would be unhappy. You see, God saved us to serve him. And by serving him, there is a great benefit. It is not a burden. And that brings us to our third point, the forerunner. Look at verses 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. How would this second exodus occur? The Old Testament told us that a forerunner would come. We would know that it was about to happen because somebody would come on the scene that would declare that this was about to happen. And that person is John the Baptist. When John the Baptist came on the scene, the people of Israel were to know that this divine visitation was about to happen. Now we see the function of John the Baptist in verse 76. This is Zechariah saying this to his child, who is just about to be circumcised. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. John the Baptist would be the last Old Testament prophet. 
Prior to John, there was 400 years of silence. The last prophet prior to John was Malachi. Now, it's interesting when we think of that parallel with the Exodus. After Joseph had prophesied about this divine visitation, it took 400 years for God to send Moses to deliver his people. The parallel there, I think, is explicit. John is supposed to then prepare the way for the Lord. And the message that he would preach is found in verses 77 to 78. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You see, John would declare salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And he would do that by pointing us to Jesus Christ, by pointing us more specifically to the cross of Jesus Christ. When John first comes on the scene, we read in John 1.29 that he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you see what he's doing? He sees Jesus, and he's teaching his people, and he's pointing all the people to Jesus, and he says, look, this is the person that you are to focus on. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In other words, he's talking about the cross. The Lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the people was Jesus. He points to the cross. And then finally we see in verse 79 that Christ defeats our true enemy. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's message about Jesus is light to those in darkness. It's life to those in the shadow of death. And it is that because it is the only message that guides us to the way of peace. Do you know what he means by that? What he means by that is that apart from Christ, we do not have peace with God. That in Christ, we do have peace with God. And so John was directing everybody to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because on the cross, God poured his entire wrath upon Christ. That was the obstacle for he and us being at peace, our sin. And the fact that God is just and holy and he cannot stand sin, he cannot be in the presence of sin, that necessitated that there was a war between us and God. And that we ourselves could not liberate ourselves from that. So God took the initiative in this divine visitation of the Son of God coming to earth to bear the penalty for our sins so that now we can have peace. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust that he has died for your sins, you are not at war with God. God is not at war with you. There is a perfect peace now between you and God. One conclusion then. We are to see that God had set down this pattern of redemption for us in the events of the Exodus. And I want us to notice the parallels here. And I want us to see why this is important. Israel was in slavery to Egypt, to Pharaoh. 
But God visited them and he redeemed them. Through Moses, he led them through the wilderness and through Joshua, he led them into the promised land. That's the basic pattern of redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished for us. So also we were in slavery to sin, to Satan, and to the world. But God visited us 2,000 years ago. He visited us in the person of Jesus Christ for the purpose of redeeming us. And he redeemed us by purchasing us on the cross, freeing us from slavery. And now this is, it's not that that wasn't important, but this is the relevant point for us to see now. Where are we in this redemptive plan? Jesus has freed us from slavery. He has redeemed us, but we still have the rest of our lives to live. We are now like Israel, wandering in the wilderness. They're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So also we are wandering in this world, living our lives on our way to the promised land of heaven that we will enter into once we die. But in the meantime, how are we to be guided? How are we to be led? Just like Israel, through God's word. As we come to church, as we read the Bible, as we partake of the sacraments, God is in fact leading us through the wilderness of this world on the way to heaven. Now all of that, this liberation, this redemption, this leading and the ultimate end of going into heaven is all guaranteed for us in the divine visitation that happened 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ was born, Christmas Day, what we celebrate today, is all about that. That when he came to earth, was born as a baby, it was the commencement of this great work of redemption that God had promised so long ago. So that's Christmas. That's what it's really about. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for the truth that you have shown us in your word. We thank you that you show it to us in so many ways, that literally all over the Bible, Jesus Christ in his work is present to be mined and to be applied and to be reminded of us, for us to be reminded of it, that we would look to him in faith as we wander in this life, as we have many experiences of good and bad and ultimately enter into our heavenly glory, we can keep our eyes focused on Christ as he is presented to us in your word and through your sacraments. Help us to do that this Christmas day, that we would not just forget it after Christmas, Lord, but throughout our entire lives, continually focus upon Christ and what he has accomplished for us. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.